0: Well, Good morning, Dorisville Baptist Church. You evidently have a very tiny preacher. <laughs> there, that's better. <laughs> that was cold. You should have heard of what, my, what I said about your ear earlier. Uh, I tried to put on the earpiece and I thought, man, that guy's got big ears. Uh, but I wasn't going to tell him that publicly. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. I just have to say, uh, I, I tease, uh, your pastor quite a bit, but there are very few men in my life that I love more than I love Dwayne Taylor and, uh, for him to offer his pulpit to me, not once, uh, but twice is an amazing privilege. And, uh, as I spent almost, uh, about 17 years in the local church as a pastor and, and so, uh, Allowing someone else to come and preach and teach is a huge deal for a pastor. And so, uh, Dwayne, thank you so much. appreciate you and your ministry and all that God has done through you and the lives that you have impacted over the uh, nearly 65 years of ministry you've had. Um, Yes. Pastor reminded me just now that he does have more hair than I do, uh, so you can see uh, it goes both ways. Well, thank you so much also for showing the, Illinois, the Mission Illinois offering video. Uh, I, one of the things that I direct at IBSA is uh, Baptist Collegiate Ministries, and uh, there's a young man by the name of Chase Abner. You may know Chase. Uh, for seven years, he was the campus minister at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale, And uh, I stole him, and uh, so now he helps me direct all of collegiate ministry. Uh, That's one of the things that I get to do at IBSA. I serve you as the director of evangelism, discipleship, uh, Baptist collegiate ministry, men's ministry, and youth ministry. And so, when you give to the Mission Illinois offering, all of that money stays in the state of Illinois to do mission work here in the state of Illinois, and just so. Uh, You you understand, there's more than 8 million lost people right here in our state, and many of them live all around you. And so thank you for your help in uh, engaging and prayerfully reaching the mission field that is our home state of Illinois. And I can say our home state, most of you know this, I was uh, born in Anna, Illinois. Um, Anybody know where Anna is? I was raised in Golconda, Illinois. It's the reason that I talk the way I talk. I can't. I've tried to get educated and get over it, but uh, it, it just didn't, didn't take. And uh, so I'm, this is home for me, and so uh, it's good to be back. My wife and our four children worship this morning at our home church. They obviously wish they could be with me this week, but I would not get rest if they were. Uh, Michelle and I, uh, we have four. Elijah, who is 12. Allison, who's 10, who took her first international mission trip uh, just a couple of months ago um, to share the gospel in the country of El Salvador. And then Maya, uh, who, who is six and should be uh, on your prayer list. And uh, Ella Grace, who is four. And uh, so that's that's my family. I look forward to... Um, Not just you getting to know me this week, but I look forward to getting to know you. Um, Many of you that are sitting in this room today are what is known as the modern generation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know how to have uh, modern technology. Uh, My dad is a part of the modern generation. Uh, which means that he grew up understanding that I must respect my elders because they're elder. And uh, my generation is not that generation, sadly. Um, I'm part of what's known as the postmodern generation. And uh, we will respect you if we have a relationship with you. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just painting the broad brushstroke of that's how culture has moved. But in many places, and and I think, uh, especially small uh, town Illinois, uh, sp- specifically Southern Illinois, uh, we we tend to be a little bit behind uh, LA and New York and Chicago as it comes to cultural issues. Uh, those larger cities uh, are just a little bit different than us, and so. While we, we still have a lot of moderns that exist, and by the way, modern is not always an age thing, it's it's more of a mindset. My dad is a modern, I grew up in a postmodern generation, but many sociologists today believe that we have moved in many places beyond postmodernism to something called post-Christian. That in many places we're living in a post-Christian society. And you might have seen some of this coming to fruition even down here in Southern Illinois where uh, we still pipe in light to some places. Amen? Uh, we, we, we've seen it with uh, the Roe versus Wade uh, decision uh, that is clearly postmodern, if not a post-Christian um, occurrence in our culture. The removal of, of at least public prayer from our school systems. And by the way, as long as there's tests, there will always be prayer in school. Okay? Every student I know of right before a test says, Dear God, help me. All right? Uh, so don't, don't worry about prayer leaving schools because as long as they have homework and prayer, you or homework and test, you will have prayer in the school system. And uh, so, but you can see these things and it it helps us to understand where our culture is moving. And... I I think within the last two years, we've seen more change in the definition of marriage than we have in the previous 6,000 years of human history. The definition of marriage has been turned on its head and something that the Bible never envisioned. Well, my friends, the modern culture would not have accepted that. The postmodern culture would have questioned it. The post-Christian culture embraces this change in the definition of one man, one woman for life. So I say all that just so you understand what's going on in our culture. Religiously, there there have been some vast changes in our culture. Let me note just a couple. In May the 2nd, 2012, the Chicago Tribune article was, um, was written about Uh, the largest and the fastest growing religious groups in the state of Illinois. Let me give you just a couple of things from that article. This is May second, two 2012. Mormonism was eclipsed as the fastest growing religion in the state of Illinois. Now, many of us would say, good, that Mormonism was eclipsed as the fastest growing religion in our state. The problem is that now the fastest growing religion in the state of Illinois is Islam. And your immediate reply would be, well, at least it's small. Well, the second thing that the article really revealed was is that Roman Catholics held their number one spot as the largest religion in the state of Illinois. Uh, evangelicals, which is like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, you know, kind of that broad brushstroke of Protestantism, uh, holds the number two slot for the largest uh, of religions in the state of Illinois. Their term, I would not term it that way, but it's their article, not mine. And thirdly, the, the third largest religious group as of May the 2nd, 2012, is Islam. It's not only the fastest growing religion in, the, in Illinois, it is now the third largest religious group in the state of Illinois. My friend Dr. John Ewart uh, has said and has written that the U.S. is now the fourth largest unsaved nation on the planet. We trail only China, India, and Indonesia for the number of lost people. Now, one of the reasons why we rank so high is because we have a large country and a large population. But in fact, it ought to startle us That the country that was founded on Judeo-Christian ethics and principles and governing laws is now the fourth largest unsaved nation on the planet. I shared this morning with your youth group that a hundred years ago, 93% of England was considered churched and now 7% of England is now considered churched. It has simply flip-flopped. And my friend, uh, Dennis Peathers, who wrote the More to Life Evangelism Strategy, says as he's watching the religious movements in America, he recognizes that we are on the same track as what is happening, or what rather has happened in England, where 93% were churched and now 7% was churched. And we're running about 50 years behind them. The terrifying thought of that for me and others... In church leadership is this. That if we continue to do what we've always done. We will continue to trend on the line we are presently trending upon. And what that means is. Is that eventually the United States of America. Christianity. Those who believe in Jesus Christ have surrendered their life to Him, will be in the vast minority of religious faith. As a matter of fact, what is growing, and most people don't want to talk about, is those people in America right now that are simply dismissing faith altogether. One study showed that 66% of kids who are raised in church homes leave active church life during college and never return. So I want to turn your attention this morning to Matthew chapter 16 and verse uh, 24. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. I want to read one verse. We're gonna, I'm going to preach uh, verse 13 down through verse, depends on time, at least 24. But I want to begin with verse 24. because I, <clears throat> Because I'm deeply concerned... Because I would love to see the churches, not just of Illinois, but of America, turn this thing around and do what's never happened before. And as to see a country reverse the trend line on Christianity, I want to see that happen. And uh, I want to see God do amazing things. And I'm just crazy enough to think, you remember where I'm from. I'm just crazy enough to think God could start it right here in this room. Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus, I believe, is speaking in generality. If a man, or if a woman, if A young man, a young woman, if a boy or a girl desires to follow, to come after him, they need to deny himself, herself, themselves. They need to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Let me pray. God, I recognize that in our culture today, in many places, Christianity is just another club to join. It is as pertinent to someone's life as some other club that they've joined. Uh, it, it it ranks um, many times below everything else we do in life or we try to fit it in where it is appropriate. But God, we uh, we are living in days where people can come up with all kinds of excuses why they, they can't be a part of worship or they can't share their faith or, or God, they can't... Um, can't be a Christian at work or at school, and Father, I know that you're you're working in us, and and we see um, these spots, God, where the gospel is echoing out from churches and communities, and families are being changed. And but God, we pray, we want to see it again on a grander scale. God, we want to see you move where thousands upon thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that this week we will see many turn to faith in Jesus. We'll see families healed, united, restored. We'll see that happen in marriages. And God, we'll see you move upon this congregation this week, such that God, Harrisburg, Saline County, Illinois, the United States of America, and ultimately, God, globally, you begin to do a work that changes the course of history. Do it again, God. You've done it before. Do it again. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think the call of Christ, if I might title the message, The Invitation of Christ, is an interesting invitation. Many times when Christian preachers give invitations, they sound more like this. Uh, If you don't have joy and peace and you want joy and peace, you need to give your life to Jesus. Now, Jesus brings joy and Jesus gives peace. No question about that. My concern is that sometimes we've sold a short-sighted gospel. Because when Jesus proclaims the gospel, he says things like this. Sell everything you have to the young rich man and come and follow me. Then to someone else he says, "Uh, if you want to follow me, you need to hate your father and mother. And then in this text he says, you need to take up an instrument of death. You need to die and then you can come and follow me. And for some reasons, that gospel, that good news uh, doesn't seem good to us. And so I believe that we have filled our churches with people who wanted to get out of hell free cards rather than joining the mission of God card. And sometimes it means that you and I need to seriously consider whether or not we are actually one of His. I hear people uh, all the time ask uh, this question. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? And as far as I can tell from the Scripture, the the question that the Scripture asks is not, do you know Jesus as your savior, Savior, but rather, does Jesus know you? And So maybe this week... God will give you the space and the opportunity to consider that question. Well, I have three things this morning for you from this text. And I want to begin in verse 13 with this. I think before we ever get to verse 24 and whether we're ever able to consider uh, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus, I think, number one, there's a question that must be settled. A question that must be settled. Look in chapter 16, verse 13. I'll read Down through verse 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, And said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, Petros. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples... That they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Caesarea Philippi was a melting pot for religious pluralism. It was a secular city where humanism was on full display. Humanism, secular humanism in particular, is that personal theology where man is the center of your universe and... And especially you are the center of your own universe and you are encouraged and welcome to pursue the pursuits of this life that bring you joy and pleasure. As long as it doesn't harm anyone else, you're encouraged just to live out however you want to. That's secular humanism where man is at the center, the apex of all creation. So in this, in this religiously pluralistic society, sounds a lot like America today, amen, where you're encouraged to do whatever you... If it feels good to you, then what? Do it. It sounds like America today. Jesus begins by asking, who do men say that I am? And of course, you read it there with me. They begin to answer, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. But I want you to notice that Jesus then aims the exact same question right at the disciples And he says, but who do you say that I am? And I submit to you this morning that getting this question right is foundational. It is primary for a right relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ. Getting this question wrong means you will never be able to accept the invitation of Jesus in Matthew 16 verse 24. If you believe that Jesus is anything less than than the Son of God, the Messiah of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. You will never be ready to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus with all that you are and all that you have. Peter here has what I would call the right profession. He says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, this is divinely revealed to you, Peter. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now there in verse 18. And also I say to you that you are Peter, Petros. You're a pebble. And upon this rock, boulder, I will build my church. This is an interesting portion of scripture. It is one that has been misinterpreted. For a couple of thousand years now. Uh, but Jesus says, you are Peter. You're a little bitty rock. And upon this boulder, I will build my church. Now let's dig a little bit deeper here that we might understand exactly what Jesus is saying. He, What he is not saying, let me cover that first. He is not saying that Peter is the rock upon which the church would be built. That is where Roman Catholicism gets this wrong. Peter is not the rock, the foundational stone upon which the church is built. Rather, Jesus says, you are Petros, you, you're a little bitty pebble, and upon this boulder. So the question is, what is the boulder? Well, the boulder is this. It is the statement of truth, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the cornerstone which the builders have rejected. You see, the the foundational truth of the church is that Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus is not the Messiah, we are not the church. If Jesus is not the the Christ, then his death on the cross is insufficient to do what it was necessary for it to do, and that is to pay for your sin debt and my sin debt on the cross. The statement of faith is that Jesus is the Messiah of God. That is a question you need to settle in your heart. This is the banner and the promise of the gathered ones, the ecclesia, the church. First time here in the New Testament that Jesus uses that words. The church is the the called out ones, the gathered ones. And this is our banner. Jesus is Messiah. Messiah the second thing that Jesus says here, I think it's important for us. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. Here's the good news. It is not my church. It's not your church. It's His church. And that's going to become very important later when I crawl into your kitchen and I talk about how we worship the God of style and tradition. But I don't, I don't want to foreshadow because I don't want you to leave just yet. It is His church. He rules and reigns His church. And by the way, He sets the strategy and the vision for His church. I don't have to be creative in coming up with a strategy for my church. God has given the strategy. See His church. He has a plan. Look at Matthew 28, 18-20. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. There's a strategy. There's a vision. Look at 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verses 1 and 2. God has given us... His strategy and his vision to march out the mission of his church. But I also want you to notice he says, I will build my church. It's not my responsibility to build his church. It's not your pastor's responsibility to build his church. It's Jesus' church and he has the power to build his church. Oh, by the way, he's the son of a carpenter. He kind of knows something about building stuff. He is the master builder. Jesus says, I will build my church. And the question then is, why do we see some churches dying and some churches growing? Well, for me, that's an easy answer. Because some churches are marching out the vision and the strategy and the mission of God. And some churches are marching out personal agenda rather than the vision, strategy, and mission of God. This is a question that must be settled. Who is Jesus? And if He is in fact the Messiah, then He is the Lord of the church and He controls everything. But notice, lastly it says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I want you to uh, uh, think through something. Gates are a defensive measure. They are not an offensive measure. The only time that gates prevail against an army is when an army stops marching against the gates. And I might submit to you that in our culture and in our country today, many times the church is asleep. And we have been lulled into a situation where we are passive concerning the cultural shifting of our time. And I would say, if Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Lord of the church. He is the foundation of the church. He has a vision, a mission, and a strategy for the church. And if we are marching out the mission of God, then we are culture transformers. And when the church ceases to march against the gates of our culture, the gates of Hades... Not that they are synonymous, but certainly we can say that the prince of the, of the power of this air is, is working in this time in history. I would say that the church has become silent. And speaking of silence, I better move on. You can tell, Pastor, when there's not a whole lot of amens, you just need to move on. There's a question that you need to settle You need to settle it in your heart. Who is Jesus? Number two, there's a method that must be embraced. Look at verse 21. From that time, after Jesus revealed this, Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem. Underline must. And He must suffer. So that must goes with uh, go and suffer. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, I I find these three verses encouraging. Because right after Peter's stellar moment... Then his mouth gets in the way. Anybody else have that trouble? Uh, Stop pointing at your spouse. I'm I'm asking you, alright? You know, Peter has this wonderful moment. Uh, Blessed are you, Simon Peter. Uh, Simon Barjona, you are Peter. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, I mean... Peter's the kind of kid in class that when the teacher asks a question, he immediately, whether he knows the answer or not, starts going, ooh, 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 ooh. And this one he got right. But then immediately after that, I mean, he, his mouth gets him in trouble. He, after he just says, Jesus, you're the Messiah of God. You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately after that, he says, oh, Jesus, hold on. You got this wrong. Now, how is that possible? If he is the Messiah of God, how is he getting this wrong? I want to submit a couple of things to you this morning. Jesus said he needs to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed and he must be raised from the dead. The problem here is this. Jesus' methodology was not what they were anticipating. Remember that there were fights over who would sit at his right hand and sit at his left. Jesus was not the king they were looking for his actions before the disciples at times was mystifying and even scandalous. Remember, hey, uh, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. Why in the world would Jesus be hanging out with Zacchaeus, knowing his profession and knowing how in that profession they would steal from people on a... On a regular basis, at one point, Jesus stooped and he wrapped a towel around him. He got down and he washed the disciples' filthy feet. Here was the Messiah of God kneeling and serving the disciples. At one point, he encouraged them not to react or get revenge on their enemies, but he encouraged them to love their enemies He encouraged them to serve and love their neighbor. He asked them, who is your neighbor? He healed the sick. He wasn't afraid to touch them. He healed the lame and he was with the broken. He met a woman at the well who had had several relationships with men and he was found talking to her. The woman in adultery was brought to him and flung at his feet. And while not condoning her sin, He certainly embraced her with grace. And it was undeserved and it mystified and was a scandalous position. Jesus' work and suffering on the cross was not the method they had hoped for. They wanted Him to build an earthly army to overthrow the Roman occupation and become the new King of Israel because in fact that's what they believed the Messiah of God was coming to do. The disciples were hoping to be then in the inner circle of the new political power of Israel. They assumed that the Messiah or the Christ was coming to restore Israel to her former glory. So aligning themselves with Jesus the Christ meant lives of power and luxury alongside the new king. So before we go judging Peter too harshly, let's remember how devastating it must have been to hear Jesus describe the coming reality. He thought the coming reality was we build an army, we take on Rome, we overthrow Rome, and Israel is back in power again. So Peter quickly and forcefully pulls Jesus aside to redirect him, and Jesus reacts swiftly and sternly to Peter. Go behind me, Peter, Satan. (laughs) Because Peter's thinking was an earthly plan, not a heavenly plan, And God was doing something so much bigger than restoring Israel's political place and power. If you remember, the Bible teaches that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Jesus was on a mission to restore mankind's broken relationship with God, not Israel's political power. Two thoughts before we move on. Some people come to Jesus today because of the false promise of earthly prosperity. It's happening in our time just like it was happening in Jesus' day. And by the way, this earthly prosperity sort of gospel is the faith of, quote, if you believe enough in God, he will hear you, and if he doesn't, it's because you lacked faith, end quote. This is also the faith of, quote, God wants you to have a bigger house, a better job, and a more expensive car, end quote. When we hear, oh, God has really blessed me, I got a promotion. What if you get a demotion? Does that mean God hasn't blessed you? Because sometimes God calls His children to suffer. As a matter of fact, He said, you will suffer for my namesake. Paul tells young Timothy, I command you to endure suffering for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Strange, this bigger house, better car, better job, theology is not the theology nor the methodology of Jesus. There is a methodology that believers need to embrace. Jesus didn't die so you could have a better car. Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be reconciled from God. Is there anything else that you want from Him? Is this not enough? That He translated you from a person of death to a person of life? He emptied Himself and so must we. We must empty ourselves, pour ourselves out for the glory of God. And I think we need to be clear that coming to Jesus means dying to self and allowing Christ to be the only life in us. He doesn't desire to be part of who we are. He demands to be the totality of who we are. And we wonder sometimes why we don't feel God moving in our life. And it's because we've added God to a list of other gods we already have. Number three. I think not only is there a question that each of us must settle, who is Jesus personally to us? I think there's a methodology that must be embraced. By the way, um, Al Mohler, I think it was Al Mohler, um, tweeted out a couple of weeks ago. It was a brilliant quote. Everything he says is brilliant. Um, But he said, if the gospel we preach cannot be preached in Mosul right now, it should not be preached in America. By the way, Mosul is where there's Uh, many beheadings uh, for those who follow the Nazarene, Jesus. And if the gospel we preach does not ring true there, it should not be preached here. Amen to that. Because our gospel is a gospel of suffering. Which brings me to point number three, and all of you are excited because this is the last point. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You, Pastor, appreciate it. I heard that. Number three, not only is there a question that must be settled and, an, and a methodology that must be embraced by us as believers, but thirdly, I, I think there's a price that must be paid. And before I read the text, let me just um, preface this section. I have heard for many years that salvation is free. And I want to say to you, salvation for you is free. But salvation is not free. It cost God's only Son His very life. That is not free. There was a price that was paid. And when we come to Jesus, there is a price that must be paid. He redeems us freely from His grace. But as we let go of the world and all of its entrapments we lay hold of Him who is our treasure. And that necessitates that we give up many of the things in our lives. That's a price to be paid. And I believe there are few today who are willing to do that, which is why in another place in Scripture, Jesus addresses you, you can't love God and Mammon, right? Uh, you, you can't serve two masters, but we seem to be the master of trying to serve two masters. And ultimately, there is despair and failure when we have our heart divided on two different loves. That's why Jesus said, you, you have to hate these things if you're going to love me. Because comparatively speaking, we must so love Christ that we're willing to walk away from everything that this life has to offer. So then Jesus says these words. After he's had a discussion about who am I and this is what I'm about to do, then Jesus invites them in. And I believe today he's inviting us in as well. And this is what he said. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's paradoxical. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. Number three, the price that must be paid. Let me let me begin with my fear. What time am I supposed to be done? You get okay. There is a high cost to truly following Jesus, and here's my fear. My fear is that we have added Jesus to the pantheon of our Americanized Christianity. We must be careful that we do not present a gospel that is easily added to the other gods already existent in our lives. Let me just list a few. This is where I normally get in trouble, so I'll, I'll try to be quick. The gods of family. Um, preacher, I, I'm not going to be all it to church today. We've got family coming into town. Wh- what? What? You, you're not going to gather with the called out ones to lift the name of Jesus because you got company? Why don't you bring them? Well, they won't come. Okay, leave them at home. There's a McDonald's down the road. Come to church. What a weak excuse. I can't, I'm sorry, I got family. Agenda. Many of us have our own agenda. So we serve the God of our agenda rather than God interrupting our life and saying, I've got a plan over here. Yeah, but Jesus, we want you to restore Israel. Yeah, but I'm doing something over here that's bigger than Israel being back in power. Yeah, but Jesus, if you'll do this, I can sit at your right hand. My brother can sit at your left. And it's going to be great. No, you don't understand. I'm going to die. And I'm doing this because if I don't, you're going to go to hell. So many times we have an agenda that we want Jesus to fulfill in our own lives and Jesus is saying, but I need you to die to self and give up everything that you've ever wanted to come over here because I desire to do something through you that you can't even imagine. I want to take you places that you never thought you would go to people who have never heard. What about the God of style? I was... Sunday mornings are always conflicting for me. What do I wear? And they say black is swimming, slimming, and uh, so I should wear lots of black. Amen. Do I wear a tie? Do I not wear a tie? Do I wear an undershirt under the shirt under the coat because I sweat? I mean, I, these are decisions. Style. Now, I don't know how many times I walk into a church and I go, uh, preacher, are, are you going to put a tie on before you get in the pulpit? No, I'm fat. I have a huge neck and it doesn't feel good. And then the, my second thing is this. Show me in here where it says wear a tie. Amen. Show me that. Amen. What are you going to do when the broken, addicted man walks in your church and he hadn't had a bath in seven days? Are you going to say, I'm sorry, you need a tie? No, I'm going to share with him the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not concerned about his attire. And by the way, since I'm on it, every pair of jeans I put on is skinny jeans. It's what happens when you're fat? What about the, the God of tradition? Well, we've never done it that way before. I told you I should. I just need to move on, don't I? I need to fast forward. We've, we've never done it that way before. Or, and my response as a pastor, which is probably the reason I do the job I do now, I'm not, I'm not a pastor, because I would look at them and go, yeah, but what we have been doing hadn't worked in 50 years, and we're afraid that we're going to upset Bertha who died seven years ago because she started it. It hadn't been effective. It's not reaching anybody. We're not making disciples, but we continue to pump energy and resources into something because it's what we've always done. What about the God of entertainment? Where we sow money. Your pastor and I had this discussion last night. I mean, we sow all kinds of money into stuff just to entertain us. What about the God of sports? Ooh. Don't talk about that one. Hey, preacher, we're not going to be in town this weekend. Billy's got a soccer tournament out of town. And listen, my son plays on a travel soccer team. And we'll show up Sunday afternoon. He may miss a game, and that means he has to sit the bench for the next game. It's just what happens. My daughter plays on a travel softball team. We will not be there on Sunday morning. We will be in church. Now listen, every time I say that, some family come up to me and go, Yeah, but we have Bible study together. At the, at the tournament, we do that. Or we go visit a church. Listen, I don't want to be legalistic about when you need to come to church. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, it's easy for some of us to justify our absence from the gathering of the body because of something we want to do. And then when I say that, just so I can check this off your box too for those of you who want to talk to me afterwards. Then when I say that, they say, yeah, but this is my family time. To which I retort, wouldn't it be better to be with your family in your local New Testament church making disciples in your town? Wouldn't that be better? So it's not that that's necessarily bad. It's just what is best for the glory of God and His kingdom. I'm going to move on. What about the God of wealth where we take extra jobs because we just don't have enough to stay up with everybody else in our neighborhood? What about the God of position where I I want the, the title and so I pursue the title because it's a God to me? What about my career when I work so much that I'm not a good husband and a good father? What about the God of accolades? What about the God of popularity? Leonard Ravenhill said the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. And today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Ouch. So Jesus' invitation is this. Come and die. The cross was an excruciating death for the cursed. And Jesus' invitation is to join Him in wearing the shame of a criminal's death. To be mocked. To be persecuted. It means that we must die to ourselves. And in the dying we find life and life more abundantly. But we will never enjoy the life that Christ offers until we die to ourselves. It's so paradoxical. Here's Jesus thinking. If you will join Jesus in his death. Then you will join him in his resurrection. But do not plan on joining him in his resurrection. If you will not join him in his death so I think we have developed, even enabled, a consumer-driven culture in American church life. Uh, there's a, 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 I travel a lot, and I eat out a lot more than I should. There's a restaurant called Burger King. Anybody ever heard of it? Burger King. They have a slogan. Anybody know Burger King's slogan? Have it your way. Boy, they, ha- they, they have done great with marketing, haven't they? For us to sit in here on Sunday morning and say, Have it your way. How many churches do you know have that on their church signs? We ought to. Because we're gonna come up with all different kinds of ministries, try to make you happy. And if you don't if you don't get happy, what are you gonna do? You're gonna get mad, you're gonna go somewhere else so that they can make you happy. Church does not exist to make you happy. You have never invited me back, are you? I'm going to unload the whole wagon today. Church doesn't exist to make you happy. The church exists so that we can declare to the nations that God loves them and died for them on the cross. So while I'm on it, Preacher, I didn't like the songs today. They they weren't my style. I, I like more contemporary stuff or I like more traditional stuff. I, I like walls that are white. I like walls that are tan. I like it's not about you. If we could have disciples who would come to Jesus and say, there's nothing in me that deserves your love, your grace, and your mercy, Jesus, but I throw myself recklessly at your feet and say, God, you've got every moment of the rest of my life. Fill me with your Spirit and send me to the nations that they may hear about the glory of God. I'm not concerned about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. I don't care where you hang the clock. I care that there's a man on my street that's dying without Jesus. And we ought to band together to do everything we can to see the gospel proclaimed all through Harrisburg, Saline County, Illinois, United States, and the world. Amen. Well, uh Lynn Ravenhill said the church used to be a lifeboat rescuing the perishing, and now she's a cruise ship recruiting the promising. The church used to be a lifeboat rescuing the perishing, and now she's a cruise ship recruiting the promising. Let me close. If we're going to join God's mission and uh, receive his invitation, what do we need to do? Well, one, rest in the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. His body, the church, will overcome. It's already written. The victory has been won. And so no matter how bleak the outlook, the king has already overcome the world. Number two. Through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, He has defeated the power of sin and death, our final enemy. There was no other way. Jesus is, was, is the sinless God-man. He substituted His life as a sacrificial atonement. And His bodily resurrection sealed the resurrection of the dead for all of those who die in Jesus. So I think two things become vital for us today. Some of us are here today. And, um uh, you're hearing Jesus' invitation for the first time to come and give up your life for the glory of the King. You say, Tim, that's uh, that's not the way to win friends and influence people. Um, my goal in life is to get the gospel to the people who need it, who desperately need it. And so, the truth is, when you come to Jesus, you need to let go. And some of us in here have never let go. We're still holding on. And you need to come today. And you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and start following after Jesus. Maybe for the first time. But then there are others of us that are in here today. And uh, whether, whether we want to publicly admit it or acknowledge it or not. There's a lot of us, me, that's still alive. And we're trying to play the game of selfish pursuit of earthly joy and enough of Jesus so that I don't go to hell. And it is epidemic in us today that many today still play the game of church, but we're really not followers of Jesus. And that single fact ought to cause us to weep before our Lord. we are in pursuit of so many things to the detriment of the highest calling in the land to follow Jesus to empty ourselves as he emptied himself now Paul says in Philippians Philippians 2 let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus who thought it not robbery to be equal with God but emptied himself And today, some of us need to do an emptying and turn loose of those things in this world that we love, that we justify why we do what we do. We need to just turn loose. And in the turning loose, to lay hold of Jesus Christ and let Him be our treasure and our joy you will find no other, no greater joy than Jesus. And I think as church leaders, we need to challenge our people to a greater dying, to a further surrendering so that the Spirit of God will envelop us change us and transform us and our families and our communities. Let me pray with you. Father, I am so convicted by your word. Father, some in here today need to settle the question, who is Jesus? And right now, uh, they are apart from you and they uh, need to come into a relationship with you by grace through faith. And God, you're willing to extend grace. And so today, God, I pray for those who are here that uh, need to settle the question, who is Jesus? And they need to come to the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, that his death did exactly what he said it was going to do. And that, uh, God, you raised up Jesus from the dead for our salvation and, and, and our eventual resurrection. So, Father, I pray for those today that need to trust you for the first time. But God, we're here, especially this week, to renew us and retool us. And part of that, God, is to refocus us on the grandeur of Jesus in our lives and to worship Him completely and not be torn by the things of this earth. So Father, I pray for believers in the room that need to recommit their life to You today. They need to surrender fully. There's stuff in us that's still alive that we need to die to ourselves, deny ourselves, and follow You. Father, I pray for that today. Thank you, God, for the privilege to preach. This morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, Pastor Brent's going to be here at the front. There's two questions that I would pose. Number one, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just for a moment, is there anyone here that would say, Tim, today, I don't know if I would go to heaven when I die. Would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? I won't call you out. I don't know your names. Would you just slip up your hand, Tim? um, God bless you. Anybody else? Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm looking. God bless you. Anybody else? Put your hand down. Thank you. I want to challenge you today to place your faith in Jesus for your salvation. I'll be up here at the front. If you want to talk with me, Pastor Brent will be here. Pastor Dwayne, I'm sure, is willing to talk to you. We're going to sing in just a moment. You can come. Just take us by the hand and say, I, I want to know today that Jesus is my Savior. The second question is this. If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ, but God has revealed to you there's some stuff in you that's still alive, you're struggling, there's some things you need to lay down so that you can more fully pursue Jesus. As we sing, I just I encourage you to come. Maybe you come as a couple. Maybe you come as a family. Let's begin today with getting the junk out and pursuing Christ fully, surrendering completely to Him. Father, this is your time, not mine. And God, I pray that you'll do a work in us for your glory in Jesus name amen let's stand